0: Uh, between craft and industry, we are looking at furniture in this session, Um, and you will no doubt have looked at the abstracts, and uh, what strikes me uh, reading the three abstracts is that we are looking at contingent design, it's the way in which a a particular object has been subjected to contexts, um, political contexts, uh, the exigencies of, of war, and of politics. So, for myself, I think of that as a sort of preliminary theme running through it. Um, but we will see. Welcoming our, our three speakers here to talk about um, the design of furniture. Thank War you. War and peace. Oh. And first of all, we start with uh, Jay Kramer <laughs> from Bucks University, and I'll hand over to him. Okay. Good afternoon. Um, firstly. I have been doing this work with Yvonne Kressler, that's why there's two names up there, I'm not a split personality. Um, but um, yeah, this is work that's built on previous work that I did and also previous work that Yvonne did, and our paths sort of crossed. Um, and we've come up with this um, short piece, which isn't really long enough but, uh, for the subject, but hopefully will give you a good idea of what we've, what we've been doing. Um, and the paper is based on archival sources and some visual analysis. Um, and we investigate a number of questions concerning some important early, early 20th century furniture. Um, and it also looks at the working conditions of the people that made it, which is often uh, neglected. So, in uh, 1916, oh, sorry, 1916, um, Charles Ronnie Mackintosh designed some extraordinary furniture for. Uh, Venman Joseph Bassett-Lope, some of you may know of that, for his Northampton residence in the UK. And only, it's really the only substantial group of work that Mackintosh um, did in, in England. Most of his work's done in Scotland and abroad. So Mackintosh commissioned, was commissioned by Bassett-Lope um, for his home at, at 78 Durngate, and there are two schemes. The first one's in 1916, and then there was a second scheme in 1919. So we have the first one. This is the back of the house, and it shows you the before and after his work, because he did some work on the architecture as well. The one on the is before, and the one on the left is after. And that's 1916, so it's actually quite, quite modern for its time. Um, just these, this is just some drawings by Macintosh of the interior on the ground floor, uh, just to prove that he did do it. And here is a picture of that room on the ground floor. And the items that we're talking about are the furniture, so this settle in here, which fits pretty much exactly into that alcove, was designed by Macintosh to basic Lokes specifications. And the second scheme is the guest bedroom. That's actually the Hunterian up in Glasgow, but that was in the house on the, on the top floor. So quite different, the two schemes in design. In both cases, furniture was designed for Bassett Lokes, and also there's additional furniture um, for two other houses. Um, This is just a drawing of the uh, settle in the first one. And, yeah, that's a replication of the settle because the original is in the V&A. The V&A weren't prepared to give that to the museum in Northampton. And also, two other houses were Candela Cottage and New Ways. Candela Cottage was in 1917, where Bassett Loke renovated and put Macintosh furniture into these two cottages, which he made into one. Uh, new Ways was a new build in 1926, and both houses were owned by Bassett Loke. He was quite wealthy by that time. Yeah. In fact, archives. Um, sorry, I jumped. Eh? It's not really good, is it? The New Ways house was um, designed by Peter Barons, um, and some of the furniture that, Bassett, that moved in there, because it's a little bit later, 1928, was um, under the design of Macintosh. You can see this top one, there's not a thing on here. I think a pointer in that the pointer? Ah, oh, yeah, up there. Yeah. That piece there is this piece here, Yeah, more or less. There's a few little details, but Obviously, the cabinet maker is modifying slightly. Um, so, the excellent furniture from the Northampton houses is now distributed across the world. So, fortunately, a considerable amount is housed in national collections such as the VA, the Hunterian Art Gallery, Brighton Museum and Art Gallery, and also there's a little bit in the British Museum as well as the Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond, Virginia. Other items have been sold at various times in auction. There was a big sale in 1980 by Christie's, and also one in 2006, and that stuff was, resides mainly in uh, international collections, quite a bit in the States. So number 78, Gate in Northampton, was the first marital home of, of Renman, Joseph Bassett Loke and Florence Jane Jones, from 1917 to 1928, when they moved uh, to New Ways in 1928. Some of the furniture which remains in the family was given to the v by Janet Bassett-Loke, who is a uh, niece, um, as he had no children. Another furniture was purchased by a local Northampton dealer as the estate was broken up. And that's the stuff that later came into the market or came to the market uh, for the Christie's sale in the 1980s. In 77, oh, sorry, 1977, a trust was formed to restore... Uh, my number 78 gate, which went on to successfully do and and the trust went on to successfully do that um, and it commissioned the architects uh, John McCasland and consequently uh, many specialists and I was involved with the replication of the furniture uh, that's the them in, in the house in 1917 after it was refurbished just near or around their wedding day and uh, that's one of the sofas that we, or the settle that we replicated for the 1916 scheme and the furniture upstairs for the 1919 scheme. Okay. Not all of the known furniture has been replicated in the house, as it's very small, and that would restrict um, visitor access. So they selected carefully what they, what they wanted. In replicating the furniture, measurements, working drawings and templates were taken from the originals um, in both the V&A and the Hunterian. And also the Macintosh drawings, which are in the Glasgow archives, were observed, things like that, which is the cloaks cabinet uh, for the downstairs. But not much detail was found on it, enough to actually make furniture from. It's okay as stylistic um, designs and so on. And we couldn't um, you know, see some of the types of construction, so it's a fairly two-dimensional um, thing. We identified materials such as wood, surface finishes, adhesives and metalwork from the original. For example, um, the blue matrix design on the chairs, the one on the right is in Hunterian, the one on the left is the replication, um, through some paint analysis, and that's just um, polarized light microscopy. So we found out that the blue was actually a base of cobalt blue. Um, and surprisingly, the wood used for the settle, which is the piece downstairs, and the cloaks cabinet, we identified through microscopy as hemlock, which is pretty unusual. Um, Bear in mind where this was made, hemlock may have been a natural choice of timber. We also noticed that some of the construction methods did not adhere to traditional British cabinet making techniques, such as this central joint. On the top left, you've got this kind of union joint, which, if you see on the right, is between these two pieces here. And it joins up the two sections on the back lattice of the um, settle. The cloaks um, cabinet also is unusual in form with its large uh, compound curve, which is actually mitered on the edges of each of those cabinets. It's really made up of three boxes, and each section is mitered. And that's a very difficult mitre because it was about that long. So it was a very physically difficult thing to do. Um, the clock set within the centre, you can just about see a clock in the centre there, um, had a handcrafted crafted face which, uh, with a German mechanism on the back from the Black Forest. Yeah, so you can see. You can see the furniture was dedicated and placed in the house where it's been since 2006. So who made this furniture? For these domestic dwellings of the Bassett Lokes. Um, Roger Billcliffe points to German interns on the Isle of Man, having made it during World War I. We can imagine that life on the Isle of Man for alien interns was challenging in the least. (laughs) We also hope to find out how much Bassett Lokes' input affected the designs of Mackintosh, including the selections of materials and how did the German interns on the Isle of Man actually acquire those materials. So let's have a look at the Isle of Man. Okay, that's maybe uh, an image that people might associate with the Isle of Man, a sort of crofter's house. Here's a map of the Isle of Man, and there's a location map of it on the left. Okay. Um, Just here is Nokelo, Nokelo. So the Quaker, James T. Bailey, describes the situation on the Isle of Man. That's James T. Bailey in the middle, that one there. Um, And he said in his diary of 1917, sorry, 1916, 23,000 men and boys, civilian internees of in enemy alien countries, confined in wooden huts behind barbed wire on a site which was formerly a farm, known as Nokalo. Situated on the west side of the Isle of Man. A further 3,000 occupying a former holiday camp in Douglas and also a number of camps distributed about the UK holding combatant prisoners of war. So remember, these were interned. The problem for these interns, and this is just where I got the, some of the sources from, and Bailey's um, cards telling you he was on the relief committee for the Quakers. So the problems for these interns was different to the combatant POWs. The civilians interned behind barbed wire on the island, three hours from the mainland, by boat, and it's quite a rough crossing, I've made it myself. (laughs) Many had married British women and had children, Um, and if they had sons, they were probably fighting in the war for the British. But they they were still um, interned. And which often meant... uh, and destitution for the families, as the main uh, breadwinner was taken away. It was not surprising, then, that these internees were frequently bitter and in a, sta- in a state of despair, which resulted in deterioration of both physical and mental powers, bringing ill health and occasional suicide. It was a well-known fact on the Isle of Man that confinement of this sort often led to a form of insanity known as barbed and it was most prevalent with those who had nothing to occupy themselves. Okay, so this is just a couple of the images which were found in the Bailey um, catalogue of images from the camps. I'll just put that in for a moment. The combatant POWs were frequently set to labour, and thus in many ways they were better off than the interns who were left to their own devices. So it was the Society of Friends Emergency Committee for Aliens in Distress that made strong recommendations to the camp authorities. And these recommendations were accepted. And between 1915 and 1919, November 1919, Bailey organized all kinds of occupations for the internees. Many of the internees were skilled professionals. The Kalo camp was divided into four camps, and these were divided into 23 compounds. This is uh, a map of Mikalo, so Lago being camp. Each, or prison. Each of the four camps had an industrial committee consisting of a chairman, a secretary, a bookkeeper, an accountant, storekeepers, and the leaders or foremen of each compound workshop. And the friend representative, in this case Bailey, from the emergency committee became known as the industrial advisor. Tools and materials were sought by the Quakers and sent to the camps and also from the interns' families. Um, And it was noted that timber was in great demand and became difficult to obtain. So trees were felled on the Isle of Man, which has a limited resource for this, and then other logs were obtained by buying logs that were not required for government purposes. And these logs were transported to the nearby Peel, which is a small town near Nopalo, to the sawmill where they were processed and seasoned over the sawmill boilers. In Camp 4, a cabinet-making workshop was established with the skilled foreman, Charles Mart. Later years saw his son Paul Mart establish the Bryn Maw workshop or the Bryn Maw Furniture Industry which you may be aware of. So that's the organisational chart 10, thank you, gosh you've got to speed up. So this is, <laughs> this is Bryn Mawr.. yeah. Um, other occupations were decorative bone carving such as this, willow and basket making, weaving, boot making and printing as well as groups of artists and bookbinders. An off- even an offset LIFO uh, printing facility was established in Camp 2 by an ex uh, light big, uh, lith- lith- litho printer, So they were able to produce this sort of thing. Apart from these occupations, there was a hospital and a store and a theatre which employed all the internees. So this is the uh, hospital staff not looking very welcoming. Um, we've got the theatre. So you've got a programme on the left. Another little interesting note is that these guys, who normally wouldn't have been able to dress up, as women were able to do this for the whole duration of the camp. So (laughs) if if you compare what would have happened to them outside, this was a good opportunity for them. And there's a thesis in that. Um, There was recreation included, football, gymnastics, skittles, and even weightlifting. Um, Other examples of work were marquetry and inlaying. So on the left, you've got a drawing of this box and on the right you've got the actual box in the uh, Manx Heritage uh, Centre or Museum. And workshops were organised for division of labour by type such as marquetry. So you can see the close-up on the left shows you the panel of inlays. You can see in that back room and obviously the fretwork all there. Um, objects were decorated with these, um, included picture frames, trays, Etc. all these sorts of things there. And just note that little isle of man symbol on the right. The intervention by the Quakers claimed that no man that became occupied suffered unduly from the wretched barbed lighters The camp com- commandant protested that the work of the friends in the camps was essential to maintaining discipline. And after the war, Bailey traveled to Europe, where he visited ex-internees and asked them what they felt about the effectiveness of the camp occupations. And he inevitably received the, the reply that they felt it was um, an extremely good way of stopping them, um, you know, going into, leading towards insanity. Um, and these were the interns, the ones who did, were the interns who felt acutely the injustice of their incarceration, particularly if they adopted Britain as their home. Um, returning to the furniture then, Charles Mart, returning, sorry, what do we know about the men who made it? And Charles Mart. Um, he left Germany and settled in England before World War I. And he was a highly skilled cabinet maker. He worked with a large London firm, which we don't know who that was, but he, he had about 80 men under him. And he had three sons, all born in England. Um, Charles Martin is there in the background, that one there. Um, and Charles was interned in 1915 at Mokelo, Isle of Man, and consequently his family made contact with the Quakers who in turn said that they would help him. Um, And eventually he became foreman of that, of camp number four, with his brother. Charles was released in 19 following a tribunal, which allowed him to continue to live and work in England. His brother was ordered to be repatriated to Germany, however, he suspects, because he was a member of the London Socialist Club. Upon his return to London, uh, Charles Mark tried to get employment but he was unable to. So, with help from the Quakers, he managed to secure a hut from the Woolwich Arsenal and had it rebuilt. Sorry, rebuilt in the back garden of his house and operated in there for a couple of years until it was discovered by the LCC, who served an injunction and had it removed. Um, Bailey in his diary states that Matt was the most outstanding cabinet maker from a set of highly skilled men out of the whole of the 23 compounds. Um, and he was successful in, in the camp. The, ca- the friends persuaded the camp authorities to designate a couple of huts to furniture making, and a group expert cabinet makers were gathered all together um, to form a committee. Um, you can see Charles there talking to Otto Gross, who is the, who is the um, if you like, in charge of the industrial committee. In a short, small cabinet making factory, it, it, sorry, a short, small... In short, a small fa- cabinet-making factory was established which produced a reasonable output of furniture, and the first lot produced included commission for Bassett Loke. Um, Bassett Loke's wife had been educated at a friend's school in Sidford, near Banbury, quite close to here, and obviously through those connections, Bassett Loke got in touch with Bailey, who agreed to um, produce the furniture for him. Um, Bassett Loke's design interest revealed when he joined the Design Industries Association um, who believed in, as far as practical, retaining uh, traditional handcrafts, and they had their roots in the arts and crafts movement. Bassiglope showed slightly socialist affinities with people such as uh, George Bernard Shaw. Bailey states that Bassiglope conferred with him about the possibility of having this furniture, and he assured, assured him that he would be able to produce it to a high, high standard, and Bassiglope provided him. Uh, a set of working draw- drawings executed by a well-known architect and furniture designer. In many of the designs, there were novel features, such as the inlay of blue erinoid. You see those plaques that are set in there, that are like white pieces. Those are actually pieces of blue erinoid. And the woods used were oak and beech, and most of the furniture was stained black. Mackintosh does refer in a drawing to Radolith. Um, Radolith is a German case formaldehyde manufactured by Galilith. In, in Harburg in Germany. But ironically, Aerenoid, which is uh, the same thing, is a plastic uh, made um, in uh, Stroud in Gloucestershire. And again, ironically, the foreman for Eronoid was a Peterson who'd come over from Galilet. Um, and he was actually imprisoned in the flat above the factory for the duration of the war. Um, Quaker, the other Quaker, was a George Sykes in Birmingham who was a timber merchant and he provided many um, items to the Nokalo camp, such as machinery, wood, and so on. Okay, so the Basset Loke furniture was um, executed and it went back to Northampton. The cloaks cabinet with the clock in set, the one on the right is at the vNA the one on the left is the replication. Um, when we examined the original one in the VA, we saw that the mechanism was stamped Lenchkirk and Geschütz. So, Lenchkirk being a spa town in the Black Forest and Geschütz meaning protected, like patented. So, it's very unlikely that um, that was made by the interns. However, um, there was time piece, There were timepiece craftsmen um, on, on the um, island. Um, and you can see them there. So, they had a, basically a watch and clock making shop. Um, and they did quite a lot of contracted work to places like Liverpool, which isn't too far away. And Bailey recites on a trip to a local junkyard, because he was always out scrounging, looking around, yeah. um, and he, was, he, he came across this bag which he kicked and it had a metallic rim. he tipped it up and it was full of clock parts. So he took that back, much to the delight of the um, watchmakers, so we can surmise that perhaps some of that may have had pieces that were made to use the clock as a possibility. Um, I better move on rather quickly, yeah. Okay, they made clocks like this one. This is in the bedroom upstairs. Um, the one on the right is in a glass case in the uh, museum. Um, also, these were designed by Macintosh. The one on the left is a photograph from <coughs> Bailey that he took on the island. Um, and that's obviously a, a well-known Macintosh clock. Other furniture made for basic load was for things like his business partner and his brother-in-law in Northampton. Um, and if we go back to this photograph, if you look here on the right, you can see this cabinet, okay? Um, and I think this one's been missed by Bill Cliff, which is quite amazing. Um, but if you move on here, you've got this drawing on the left with the same five drawers, the same bits of inlay, and the form is rather similar. Ignore the, the pattern map. And if you look here, we go, we've got the two pieces um, together, the actual one that is um, in the private collection on the left and that as close-up of that one on the right. Very, very similar, if not identical. Made under the watchful eye of Charles Mark. Yeah? So, um, we could say that the paper establishes the manufacture of this Macintosh-designed furniture took place in Camp 4 and Okalo, in the cabinet-making watch- workshop under the watchful eye of Charles Mart and Otto Gross during the First World War period. So, can visual analysis be combined with social history to allow a deeper understanding of meaning in designed objects? I think we'd all agree that that is a distinct possibility. Um, it certainly can provide a better understanding of the social working conditions where these objects were constructed. We don't know if Mackintosh visited Norcalo, but we're pretty sure that Bassiclo probably did, as he continued to employ them for a period up to about 2020. Sorry, 1920, jumping forward to quickly there. Um, and we've also seen through examination of archival material that we can more closely understand to understand the lives of the people that made it, something which is very often neglected. Okay, thank you.